This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and uh, with me in studio is uh, is, a, is a favorite, Dr. Judy Ledgerwood. Hi, Judy. Hey, good morning. Good to, uh, good to have you here. And we are joined with a virtual um, friend and, and colleague, uh, Dr. Jenna Grant. Welcome, Jenna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, good to have you. Um, Judy, why don't I let uh, as a fellow scholar of Cambodia, why don't I let you introduce uh, Jenna for our listeners? Great. Yeah, Jenna Grant is a cultural anthropologist working in the fields of medical anthropology and medical humanities, feminist and post-colonial science and technology studies, visual anthropology and Southeast Asian studies. Her work includes participatory filmmaking, ethnographic and historical analysis of medical imaging, and community-based inquiry of archival images. Um, her book project, Fixing the Image, uh, is based on over two years of ethnographic and archival research in Cambodia and France, examines uh, contemporary medical imaging services in Phnom Penh, and that book's out under review. Um, Jenna is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Washington. So, Welcome. Thank you. I'll just add uh, that the book is actually now in pre- in press. It's coming. Uh, oh wow! Should be coming out later, like this summer, maybe. So. Oh great! That's exciting. Where? Yeah, uh, with the University of Washington. That's great. Yeah, we'll look forward to it. So uh, a little yeah. plug, a little advanced plug for our uh, <laughs> for our listeners. Uh, yeah, you'll have yeah. to come on. Uh, feel free to come on after, and we can we can. I'm sure there's uh, we've only covered a little bit of obviously what you're um, what you do in the book. Uh, sure. N- the now the the part of what you talked about with us is what you called pressure and freedom technology and formations of public and private healthcare Phnom Penh and you focus specifically on in in this section on ultrasound uh, and ultrasound technology. So can you maybe just go behind the music? How did you decide to study uh, uh, ultrasound in Phnom Penh? Ah, thanks. It started actually with an encounter in 2004. I had been living in Sisapan, which is in the northwest of Cambodia near the border with Thailand. Um, And I was living there doing some work with the WHO on drug-related HIV risk, which was kind of my background in a more applied kind of public health vein before I went to grad school. Um, Okay. And I, uh, I accompanied uh, Rune, uh, who was a friend and someone that I had worked with to an appointment for um, what was a very large and visible kind of lump in her, what looked like her, um, her uterus. And so we went into a private clinic and uh, this was arranged sort of- In, in Phnom Penh or- No, in Sisapan, which is a smaller town yeah. kind of um, where roads intersect on the way from Thailand to Siem Reap and to Phnom Penh. It's sort of, it used to be like a truck stop, but it's grown into more of a, a town now. Um, and I was intrigued by just the whole process of sort of how did we get this appointment? It was through friends of friends and sort of the in- kinship networks through which we met the doctor in his own private clinic, which was on the ground floor of his house in um And so it was sort of this mix of he was a government doctor, he had a private clinic, um, and then he he scanned um, Drun, it was the first time she had had that I had never had an ultrasound at that point either. and uh, it resulted in a diagnosis of a uterine cyst and she went to Phnom Penh for surgery for it and um, is healthy and and it worked out well at that point. So I was interested kind of in the the whole process of that, sort of what it led to in terms of the medical outcomes, but also the sort of (laughs) socio-technical process of how we got into that room at that time. And so at at this point where you, you were um, doing anthropological field work and you're kind of looking for sort of interesting avenues in public health, is that, that how that intersected? Well, I, was, I was doing more applied work and I knew I wanted to get a PhD. Um, 
<clears throat> and I uh, became interested in, I started learning Khmer, I started learning about kind of the history of Cambodia and that particular region in Cambodia. There, Many of the people living there were, um, had recently been repatriated from refugee camps over the border. So I was learning history from their kind of perspective and their experience of both repatriation, but having lived in Thailand for a good chunk of time. Um, so it, it's just sparked my interest in how I, as a foreign, um, you know, white female medical med interested in medicine and public health, not yet an anthropologist, was sort of there doing technical consultancy. Sort of what what are the power relations that involve me as an expert telling people, trying to understand what their risk for HIV was. Meanwhile, I felt like I was learning from experts about this this like vast kind of geopolitical history, basically from their from their words. So that prompted me to go to graduate school in anthropology, and I wanted to continue to study Cambodia. And actually, my first project that I sort of proposed as a in my applications was to study a clinical trial about HIV. So that had been my area of expertise. That trial was canceled by the prime minister. Um, and it was a very fraught sort of political issue. And so I, I sort of dropped that as a project because people's jobs were at risk and it wasn't really a good topic for a grad student to be asking people about at the time. So, so I, I changed course, which um, I've had a long interest in visual studies and film, and I wanted to continue to look at the politics of technology, um, also in the context of histories of development and aid. Um, ultrasound was very visible to me, both in Sisapon, um, but also in Phnom Penh, where I did more of the work on the clinical trial. That And what by visible, I mean, they're just images of the word echo in Khmer, um, but also pictures of ultrasound machines and pictures of like the fetal face on the ultrasound monitor. And those are used to advertise for private clinics, right? Both maternity clinics, but also general. For, for I guess, for Judy and for, for Jenna, like how... how this is a, how, how long have these, when did these start popping up? Like, uh, like sort of uh, storefront ultrasound places. When do you start seeing these things? Well, I, um, I started, you know, studying this in 2008. And so that was when I noticed it, you know, that was where the, the sort of, I saw the saturation, but I was also paying more attention to it at the time. According to doctors, sort of radiologists and um, gynecologists that I talked to, they said that ultrasound was first um, used in Cambodia either in 1989, according to one story, or in 1990 uh, or 91. And these were both in kind of humanitarian contexts where the machine had been donated by a foreign organization to a hospital. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Judy, you, you probably know what, what deal does foreign aid play in, or or involvement in the. I mean, did you, when did you've you've been a long time in Cambodia? When when did these things? Uh, um, late nineties. Uh, I I don't remember when the advertising started. Um, in in the if you go back to the nineties, um, late eighties, early nineties, um, it was really a, a much more of a a government. All the hospitals were government hospitals, and so this whole I was fascinated in your talk by the whole process of moving to privatization and when does that switch because in the in the talk, you used this metaphor, the mother child metaphor, and you said the Ministry of Health is trying to control the private sector is like a child trying to control its mother and for me, that's quite stunning because of course, the old model from the from those early days was a very top down model, and the ministry controlled everything. And the this uh, people who did private, you know, there was a sneaking behind the scenes to run these the clinics out of their house. It was uh, it was outside the sanctioned system. So I was struck by that too because it was counterintuitive. I thought the role the child and mother are switched yeah. places. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> so that's why, like, as a you know ethnographer, that's when you're like, oh, what is this? This is like very revealing of something of of sort of power and 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 also people's impressions of um, the way responsibility uh, should be enacted. And so um, I really went with that, obviously, in the talk <laughs> and also in the book because i I tend to I tend to kind of notice these things that are sort of rub up against my own expectations, right? And as productive in some way based on what I know. So so this minister was the director of hospital services at the time. And he he was framing it as the private sector being um 
more established uh, in the sense of kind of a power, powerful relation right. and in terms of money, right? But also the way that I understood it, and I should say that this was not the way he framed it, but the way that I came to understand it was through this longer history of the entanglement of public and private, sort of as the growth of a medical profession. And for that analysis, I also rely on Anne Guy's work um, in that kind of post-Sankum era. She's done some um, interesting historical work about the formation of the profession of doctoring kind of in the 50s and 60s. Right, the functionaires, entrepreneurs yeah. that you use that phrase. That's Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really that's great. That's her phrase. That they're yeah, both that phrase. they're both officials and they're business people at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe maybe say say a bit about for our listeners the a bit about the history of healthcare in Cambodia and it you know its involvement in post-independence to sort of socialist to humanitarian um to the sort of free market period. I mean, that's a huge sure. swath, but like, say, say a bit brief. about it. Yeah. Cut me off if I start <laughs> babbling. But, um, but, I, but I should preface it by saying that I do rely um, on the work of historians and anthropologists for, for, for a lot of this. So Sokeng Ao, who's done the more colonial period, but then also Angyu and also Ingrid Trinkle and Jan Obison. But particularly Angyu's work has been important to me. Um, and... Uh, um, for this period of time in particular, but also talking to doctors who went to med school then in the 60s. So some of these are some of what I learned is based on conversations with people, um, not so many people, but uh, but particular me, Samadhi, who was a prominent um, radiologist who died kind of soon after I interviewed him, actually. But um, he wrote a memoir as well. So there's an interesting uh account yeah yeah he's called survivor for the surviving and i can um it's in Khmer and english um and so it's i think independently published self-published but i can follow up with you but there he describes also um a bit about the pre-khmer rouge period so in the 70s and 60s um and i should say hang nor's autobiography also talks about his practice as a doctor in the 60s in particular so there's where he talks about having a private practice and a public practice and is it Um, like french training prevalent in for for that generation of of medical professionals they, um, the doctors were trained, the, the kind of professional language was French, um, and many of the instructors, as Mi Samadhi described it, were French and Vietnamese, kind of in the early mm. period, in the 50s and 60s, and, but now it's, it's completely right. Com- Cambodian, right. right? Eric, just to go back to your question, like some is sort of learning from both these biographies and the way people narrate their histories, their kind of professional histories, and then as well as some um, of the archival, particularly these journals that were published by the yeah. uh, the Russian hospital, the Khmer Soviet Friendship Hospital, and then history. So there's, I, I'm interested in the different organizations of healthcare and um, and also how these are tied to different ideas of the public right and the private and what what yeah. it is to have a public um to be responsible for as a government how um uh what is the individual supposed to do in those contexts right and what we what i have been interested in is how that's um particularly particularly in the sort of two, the early 2010 i would say which may have been a high point of a lot of aid i think there's been a shift in the landscape in the past mm-hmm. 10 years but there was a real, there was still the language of kind of, um, you know, there had been a language of democracy promotion and sort of part of that decentralization that Judy and, and King have um, analyzed, right, in other domains was happening also in medicine, right, where where the way to do a post-socialist kind of democratization is to open up to marketization, but also to decentralize control. That, had, that wasn't... Um, happening so strongly in healthcare, there was still a, you know, the Ministry of Health was kind of based on this WHO model where there's a central and then there's these posts and there's these districts and the sort of they all relate in this interesting way. But but there's been a push towards autonomy. Um, there's been a rise in public-private partnerships, those sorts of ways that privatization were happening, um, particularly at the time that I was there. How did how did uh, how did doctors fare? I mean, under under democratic Kampuchea. Um, I mean, were they were they people with education did not fare well in general? But I could see doctors being perceived as useful in a way that I mean, I I just I don't know enough. What what was it like for did 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 they survive or did, uh, better or worse than other trained professionals? Uh, Judy might have just as much to say about this, but from what I 
the kind of standard narrative is that that me Samadhi, for example, said, but also in a lot of history and anthropological texts, is that um, doctors did not fare well. Um, and Ngu has a point that because of this functionary entrepreneur role, they were not necessarily um, revolutionary as doctors have been in other contexts, right? Where doctors like mm. you, we could think of Franz Fanon, for example, they're they're doctors that are actually very involved in kind of revolutionary and radical politics. And that was less the case, although there are important exceptions, right? Some doctors did go to the Maquis and did train, um, uh, you know, set up kind of field medical schools for training people in the Khmer, under the Khmer Rouge and Democratic Kampuchea. But in general, doctors were not kind of enamored of leftist politics the way that maybe many um, senior people yeah. in education were, for example. But Misamadi, uh, so uh, just a point, I write about this a bit more in an article in um, East Asia Science and Technology Studies, but it's about, there's this really interesting anecdote, for me at least, in Misamadi's autobiography, where he talks about how he had to pretend he wasn't a skilled kind of doctor, but then he would get called to a provincial center to um, help with the healthcare of a kind of cadre, higher level cadre. So his skill was important in certain contexts, and he had to perform well, but then he had to go back and sort of labor right. in the fields like everyone else. So I think there was not a, there were, uh, Ingrid, uh, Trankel and Jan Ovison make the argument that there was this two-tiered system where actually what we might call biomedicine was actually still practiced in hospitals, particularly in the capital, but but only for a select few, and the vast majority of the country was supposed to have sort of people's medicine or Khmer Rouge medicine. Perhaps as a way of getting to some of the heart of your research, uh, tell us story others are interesting about this sort of new clinic that you talked about. You want to you want to tell us? Give I think that was a great anecdote. Okay, the, um, yeah. So it was a. Uh, it was, I started the talk with a, you know, a vignette about um, this new clinic, right? And it was, um, to me, exemplary of the different types of uh, both material, and by material, I mean kind of the physical structure of the building, the new machines, um, the free giveaways, but also sort of the idea of this kind of rising Phnom Penh, right? It was part of these new buildings that are being constructed. Um, Inside, it looked like some of these more new apartments that were had um, fancy sort of not fancy, but you know they were comfortable elevators, televisions, private rooms, clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, you know waiting rooms that were air conditioned and more comfortable. So all of the things that make it more less of a drain to do health to go to healthcare, right? Um, and also uh, an, a, a different expectation of care and respect. Um, so the, the the new clinic was one that had ties where all of the physicians that I spoke with and sort of spent time with in their exam uh, rooms were working for a government hospital and then worked in this clinic on the side. And it was legal. This is perfectly appropriate and legal. So it'd be like um, nine to five at the government that. hospital and then evenings at the clinic or something? Yeah, evenings and sometimes early mornings. Um, okay. So uh, before, uh, but often evening. And um, But because of the size of the clinic, they also did have staff that were there during the day. So did, it depends did, did you get a sense of like that it was worth more of their time to get the private did work privately i'm guessing that they made did they make more work uh outside uh, the hospital hours I, my sense you know it's a it's a good question i didn't go into too much detail about salaries um it's a little bit sensitive but um, but 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 they um but sure yeah you make more money in the private but you also need the public for the kind of legitimacy and the connections okay. and the and the so they they're symbiotic i guess which is why the mother child relationship was so intriguing to me because there's this kind of they need each other they're not they can't just exist and this may change they may be able to be entirely separate but well, at that time people had jobs in both places. When you you said that it's um, because there's this tension um, that they would get a retired doctor to Jochmu to to George put Moore. down their name yeah. at, uh -huh. uh, on the application for the clinic or the paperwork yes. for the clinic, and then the others could work there sort of under the cover of that. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. So that's yeah, yeah, that was not the case at the new the kind of the new clinic that I was describing, but that was something that people described. And it, I'll be honest, it was hard for me to actually do field work in those places. Right. Uh, so okay. um, so I, I wanted to do the majority of my work was in public spaces. And then this this private clinic that I describe, I spent also a lot of time there. But 
But um, but there are a lot of private clinics that I visited that were, you know, not interested in me being there, which is, um, you know, I, di- I didn't push them on why or yeah. what was going on. But, Actually, it's but... pretty remarkable the access that you did have, though, <laughs> when you in the state hospitals and sort of hanging out with all these women coming and going. And yeah, and, it was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so and, and another overlap of the sort of public private partnership that you mentioned is that the, 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 the people who were there, they were largely, it's like the, the, it was kind of a, the sort of local, um, uh, uh, I don't know who officials were sort of spreading the word about, Hey, come to this clinic. Like how did like explain, uh, that was an interesting, um, relationship where, you know, what was happening with like getting a health healthcare drive to get people to this clinic. Yeah. That, um, so I, I have to admit, I didn't track that very closely. That was a word of mouth thing. I was like, how'd you find out? And it's like, oh, my local kind of neighborhood leader told me and they had been told by someone else. So there had been a chain yeah. of, of like spreading the word. And I think that's probably common about the way the word gets spread about things. Um, but, but, uh, but that was uh, something, I, again, that suggested to me that there were um, this event depended on a really interesting mix of government and kind of private practice. Um, and that's that's something that you see, for example, Elizabeth Roberts, who's a medical anthropologist who works in Ecuador, has described kind of similar things, right? Where, where there are these sort of giveaways and free things. Her, her focus was IVF, but she was looking at um, uh, also private clinics and sort of how they draw in people. And also often it's through these kind of free events or like a little bit of um, kind of a raffle or some gambling. And so, you know, depending on the context and sort of what works, there might be different ways of doing that. But that um, is not something that's, I think, uh, unique to Cambodia, right? Yeah, that, didn't you say you get the get an ultrasound and then you get a free head scan? <laughs> so that is an amazing, that's one of those other sort of points when someone said that, that I was really <laughs> impressed. And... <laughs> That was a story that was told to me by a public health researcher uh, who had been working in the countryside. And we said, you know, most of my research, almost all of it on ultrasound was in Phnom Penh. So I tried to talk to people who had done some work in the countryside, but it was not my own focus. And so he said, oh, yeah, people know that this is a little bit of a scam. They're trying to get you in. And this is what they say. You know, um, talk ball, ah, pimon. <laughs> I mean, sort of talk, um, uh, talk, ah, pimon, uh, talk ball free, you know. <laughs> and so sort of like that like you do you go in for the scan and then you can get an extra one but no people you don't really get ultrasounds of heads you know that's not the, the not, not until now that, yeah that particular well it wasn't I, I, they weren't being literal but it was sort of yeah. like here you go and so to me it's beautiful because it's funny it's like a very kamai kind of poetry and like cynicism but it's also shows some knowledge about what ultrasounds for and also the way that doctors are trying to entice people in. And so it's, it's great in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, so one of the things you're trying to track in your work is that this, the, the shift in the relationship between uh, private and public as it moves from, you know, the social state to authoritarian elite capitalism, as you say, um, I guess, how does, how does ultrasound, fit into this like is it is it is it similar i guess say a bit about that and and also is it is it happening similarly in other sites outside of sort of ultrasound and 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 health or not yeah so this is interesting because this was a um you know an argument maybe more from my science and technology studies background where i don't want to just say the social is kind of shaping the technology or the technology is shaping the social, but there's this co-production, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I was like, yeah. ultrasound isn't just reflecting what's going on at the structural level, it's also participating in these changes, right? And so a lot of people were like, really? I don't know, is that a stretch? And I was like, no, I think it is because I see, um, look at all these ads. I mean, this is the way the private is being kind of g- grown is through advertising services for this particular service, right? Um, and so part of it is just my own sort of sense of the ubiquity, but also it was, um, you know, uh, in other parts of the book, I explore kind of the appeal of an image of the inside and particularly an image of the fetus, right, of the child to be. And so there's something particular about this technology. It's not just a lab test, right? It's not a um, an MRI just of the head. There is something particular about ultrasound, its technical properties in that it's low risk, 
it doesn't require a lot of labor. You don't need a nuclear physicist or like a magnetron like you do for some other <laughs> imaging technologies, right? You can have it mobile. You can do it on your phone now. Um, so uh, there's properties of the technology itself that are important that contribute to its, um, its appeal. Uh, and that I was trying to graph kind of how that maps into also sociopolitical changes and move toward um, a market-based medicine. And in terms of what, in other contexts, you know, I was um, shared this chapter of the book uh, with some medical anthropology colleagues and one Rima Praskaliskine who works in Lithuania is like, this isn't what happened in Lithuania after the fall of, you know, after the change. And because she's like there, and she gave me this beautiful phrase, the first green shoots of private practice are these like, that's how she saw it. Right. And I was like, yes, <laughs> this is, this is what I'm trying to capture. And so we had a Ex really exciting conversation about that because she, she, you know, she was like, this is happening in Cambodia. So this is something that's not just, this is a kind of a feature of post-socialist transition in some ways for medical systems that how do doctors gain money when there's low kind of investment, low infrastructure and high returns of a product, right? For, for everyday kind of Cambodians, what is your sense of how this is being experienced? Like, is there an expectation for motherhood? Like, one needs to get an ultrasound or, or worries about like, I mean, what yeah, can you say a bit about like what, and, and is that, and is that reaching across like class, like where this is something everyone needs to do or um, yeah. Can you say a bit about how, it, how it's being experienced by, I guess, especially mothers and families? Yeah. Well, I can, I don't want to claim to speak for kind of people's experience, but at the same time, I do think that it was wider, more widely used than I had expected at the time I set out to do the research. Um, I remember my dissertation committee saying, you're just going to be talking to middle class people, you know, and, and so you need to frame that kind of in your research. And, and so I was sort of prepared that this would be more of a study of middle class medicine and um, certainly in the private, but, but I found um People from all different classes and experiences knew about ultrasound, wanted to talk about it. And part of the reason that was the case uh, is because I was pregnant at the time. And so people um, at the time of my research, people. Oh, you, 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 you yourself were. I myself was pregnant for the first time for me, you know, first and only time. Um, <laughs> and so I was visibly pregnant while I was doing my field work. And so in the hospital, patients would talk to me more oh, um, wow. about the kind of that. But also when I took walks in the park, people would talk and they'd say, oh, it's like, is it a boy or a girl? And I'd say, I don't know. And they're like, haven't you gone for an ultrasound yet? You know, and so that would open up a conversation with taxi drivers and, you know, people doing their calisthenics and waitresses and hotel workers, you know, so it was a broader swath of this, again, kind of more casual conversation that for me is really important kind of data <laughs> but it was a uh, it was that's how that's how it sort of spread and then also working in public hospitals particularly at the Russian hospital people come from all over the country you know it's not just the Phnom Penh and and I was in a general imaging ward so it was not just maternity <clears throat> so people were coming for suspected cancers they had been referred from doctors they also um you know, had heard that this this hospital had expertise in radiology compared to some of the other public hospitals in in Phnom Penh, at least at that time. Um, that that the director of the imaging ward had <clears throat> had been educated um, in Ukraine uh, during the eighties in the in the communist period, and um, he you know was had a particular idea of rigor and diagnosis at the time that was. Um, Anyways, I'm, I'm diverging, but a lot of people, uh, a lot, a broader swath of, of society, at least that I encountered in Phnom Penh, were aware of, had had at least one ultrasound. This is husbands talking about their wives or women talking about their sisters or talking about themselves, had had at least one during their pregnancy. And it was partly about gender, partly about um physical kind of what people would say, thing, oh, like it does it have all its parts sort of. I mean, I mean, Jung, you know, yeah, yeah. 10 I fingers. Mean, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So that was, uh, that was, uh, those were the two sort of reasons, but, but the way that honestly, I'll be like the, my physical pregnancy was like a provocation <laughs> to, to, for, for conversation yeah. about it with people. I mean, for aspiring researchers, that's not the sole reason to be pregnant, but, no, that, but, no, but it no. happened to be useful. It was not expected. I would say it was not planned. So, <laughs> uh, But this uh, talking about um, the availability of medical care to different um, classes of people um, uh, brings makes me think of another point you made in your talk, which is about um, market fixes, you called mm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, so these different ways that – because the old system, frankly, was, was – um, terrible in this it, it the doctors were in the city and medical care was available to wealthy people and if you went to a clinic in the countryside probably nobody was there and um, like a vast difference between oh well, vast yeah, difference yeah, yeah. Be, rural areas basically had no health care almost no health care if you go all the way back to the early 90s but these um things that you mentioned in the talk like uh the dual practice public and private but user fees insurance schemes um public private partnerships there's and there there's new now there's the um the poor card the card that you can get you can use to get access to medical care so um, is it the boss hassle or is it that so that's more the social security i guess the boss hassle card i i to be honest i don't know what it's yeah. called i haven't been yeah. back since it was instituted <laughs> yeah so it's something different yeah um so the uh but you can go now to um uh, cl- uh public uh, hospitals in rural areas at um, provincial and district level, and you can get services. Somebody's there, yeah. and and in part this is attributed, I think, to these kinds of public-private mixing that were not there before. Doctors are are some of them charge fees, minimal fees, but also the state is paying a fee per service to uh, each time they provide a service, instead of the expectation being that the person coming in is going to have to pay. Mm-hmm, so um, mm-hmm. I think that um, in terms of outcomes, some of the things mm-hmm. that you're addressing have really helped to drive access in rural areas. Is that, do you think mm-hmm. that's the case? Yeah, again, I can't, I want to be modest and I, I, I don't, haven't studied it in the rural areas, which is obviously the vast swath of the country. Um, so, uh, but but I think that I think there are a few things there because if the government is paying, these are, um, I wouldn't call that necessarily a market fix, right? Like that, to me, if the government is paying. That's driven by the by public or the, the public. That's like a, that's a socialized system yeah. in some ways, right? Um, but but I think the the market fixes that I was looking at were the kind of re- the, the goal at one point to transition to user fees sort of for everything. And I think that was met with a like, oh, as one MSF, Medicine Small Frontier person, put it in, um, how it's because along with user fees came the um, health equity scheme, right? Which is where people who were poor, this was in the kind of early 2000s, 2010s, could, could get a health equity sort of release, but you had to kind of go through a questionnaire to prove you were sort of eligible and qualified. And what some people who were critical of this approach, user fees versus kind of exceptions that are very bureaucratic, how many people fit into this category of needing an exception until it becomes really unfeasible and and not useful to do this process, right? Like, um, when does it make sense to just provide healthcare for all? So you see also debates that didn't always involve Cambodian voices, frankly, but like international debates between more left-leaning kind of socialized medicine economists versus um, market economists who are like, no, we need user fees and privatization and different types of insurance schemes. And others saying, no, we need to stick with socialized medicine and just build up the central system, right? And that debate isn't always grounded in Cambodian goals or visions, I think. That was like, a, I saw that as happening at other levels as well. Is like the the Ministry of Health are they are they focused on um, you know like outcomes like in terms of are they uh, are they sort of however we get there private or public we want like infant mortality we want um, you know to, we want we want um, you know just better better healthcare or are they or are they worried about how the system happens I guess do they like do they are they frustrated by that the, the 
that they've become the child in this in this relationship or not, or they they're they're they have an altruistic like however we get there, it's fine. What do, what what is your sense of the? Mm, I'd be cautious about saying too much about that, but I um <laughs> I, I I I you know. As, as with many systems, there are people who are deeply committed to um, what people might say are kind of like a service for the public good. There are people who look at it as, you know, doctoring isn't some special profession. We're all making a living. I think that's the functionary entrepreneur argument that is important because a lot of the... yeah. And Angie, you talked okay. about this a bit um, in terms of the 90s, which is when she was doing her work, is that a lot of the doctors she was working with... Um, really chafed at this idea like, oh, we have to be serving for the public good. Why can't we just be doctors and earning a living, right? Do we have to have this kind of moral ethical sort of angle to it? Um, and I, yeah. I, I note that because of course that's not the case in the U S or Australia or, or, or even Europe, right? It's a particular feature of the types of doctors and technical experts that go to post-conflict places. They really expect that from professionals, whereas that yeah. expectation doesn't carry back home. Right. It has to, it has and, to have this humanitarian. Why, you know, you know and, add and on, so, yeah. I mean, I think so in my own sort of way of thinking sure. about medicine, but that's not particular to Cambodia. That's also for Seattle, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, so, so, so I think that that is a, that's kind of a, this kind of post humanitarian sort of haunting is the wrong word, but there's that, that sort of thing that does that, that, um, uh, this longer history of doctoring, not necessarily as the moral profession for the good of the of society right that's not necessarily the main goal for many people obviously it is for some but it it, it there isn't that socialized medicine kind of imperative that humanitarians want from medicine right right interesting so who are who are doctors these days <laughs> are they and and where are they training are they um because the the medical school in Phnom Penh for a long time was um, you had to pay a lot of money to get in and to stay in. And, um, and so that it was a, a certain it's group kind of, of provincial people. elites and, and city, but like, yeah, wealthier people. Oh, well, and then with this rise of IU, right. Or the opening of the international university, which was the first, at the time of my research, it was sort of the first big private medical school. Um, and my research assistant, Miri um, Hing Sokom, was a medical student there in the private university at the time. So I learned a lot also from her and uh, talking about um, her, her fellow students and what they were doing and um, what they were interested in doing. Were, were most uh, of the medical faculty like, like, like Cambodian? Were they like yeah. maybe Siedra? Okay. All of them. I mean, almost all of yeah. them, at least that, that she mentioned they were, and they were teaching at both universities often. Um, and they were just like, they were working in private, public and private. They were overtaxed extremely, right? Um, the, these, these instructors were doing yeah. work. So one could argue that just like I, I say, the expertise is potentially similar in the public and private, if the same people are working in both places. Um, I think that the, at that time the teaching was also similar because the same people were teaching that uh, again, okay. this was in the, this was in the, you know, 2010, 11, 12. Sure. Kind of. that so was I want to be careful to not say that that's the case now. <laughs> that was <laughs> but, certainly, that was certainly true of um, the other private universities that were opening that the, the faculty at the state universities were um, also teaching at the new private universities. It was the same faculty. Yeah. I think there are a lot of potential parallels and also probably interesting differences with education, right? Where people are working the both and it raises questions for those of us interested in kind of expertise and training. If it's sort of what is the difference if the same experts are working in both places? Or is it something about the environment that encourages studying? Are there more resources, you know? But at the time, um, just for example, at the private university, the the founder died and there was a long break and the students were supposed to do their exams, but their exams were postponed. So some of the same sort of disruptions and unpredictability that you would see at the government medical school was also happening at, at the private medical school and that you weren't necessarily moving through the program more quickly or, or more cheaply, certainly not. What's the regulatory landscape for... Um opening a ultrasound facility like are there 
required trainings of, of technicians. I'm just wondering, like, how, um, you know, can anyone open one? What What is the, you know, like, it, it's a, it's an interesting place because it, 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 um, the, uh, the, the technical training would allow someone, uh, to, to pre- pretend to do it who didn't, maybe didn't know what they were doing in a way that other medical, like surgery wouldn't, you, you know, you probably need to have to, have to be able, you couldn't even pretend. So I'm just wondering what the, how they regulate. So again, kind of at the, during this time period, there were not a lot of regulations about that. There were sort of laws on the books, but then in terms of their enforcement, that was the question. And so the hospital director of hospital services is like, you're supposed to be trained. You're supposed to have, um, you know, be a legitimate, like certified medical professional, whether that's a nurse or a doctor, um, or, um, but, but technician. Yeah. Well, there wasn't a technician, ultrasound technician kind of field like there okay. there may be now, but there wasn't like the sonographer profession. So it was kind of do- doctors and nurses were doing the yeah. ultrasounding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, but, but I would say that as in studies of ultrasound in Vietnam in Syria in Ecuador, in the United States, it's just, uh, it's a technology that's taken up by non-experts, right? I mean, we know in this country that um, the, the way that ultrasound is entangled with the politics of abortion and sort of life politics, there are clinics where people have no training at all that are that are providing ultrasound services, and there's some state governments that are mandating women go to the, to a clinic before they have an abortion. And so these here in this country, you see people vis- going to places where there is no minimal training, and sonographers are really upset and kind of concerned about this. And you can track those debates in the literature and kind of sonography mm-hmm. professional literatures. <clears throat> so I just want to say that this is again, an argument for looking at the specific technology, not just the kind of regulatory system and how it, inter- how, it how the technology itself sort of participates in broader political and kind of moral debates. Um, so the regulation, in some, the regul, I, I think there were policies, but there were, they were not enforced and also they were not fully fleshed out. Um, and so you would see uh, one of the clinics that I visited a few times was sort of an NGO that would train um, doctors to do ultrasound imaging because there was not a lot of training. And then, um, so the doctors would pay for that and they would come from the provinces or from the city. They'd be sort of young medical students in the city or older physicians from the provinces would pay to go through this training. And then patients could come in and get free services sort of so that there were bodies to practice on. So you see, again, this kind of interesting combination of free versus people paying versus how people had to get training um, at that time was kind of in these internships, sort of on the job trainings. I think that's changed, but I, but at the time it was not. Are they getting, are they, so is it, are they getting prescribed? Is it often like a doctor will prescribe, like go get an ultrasound and, you know, send the image back or like, is that how, or people are Sometimes, people on their own initiative just going to them? Both. Or, yeah. yeah. I think it's more the latter, um, particularly in pregnancy, uh, okay. um, that you can just go, you don't need a prescription. You just go and pay. What does it, what does it cost? Like maybe give a sense of yeah. what that would mean for a middle-class Cambodian. At the time it was, uh, sort of between three and $7 us. Um, and that depended on whether it was color a color printout or you got a DVD or if it was 3D or 4D. So there was a range with the kind of higher tech being more expensive. 4D? Four, four, four 4D <laughs> is the, is like most is, um, Oh, okay. Uh, like, uh, um, like a video. Like video. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And 3D is kind of this, you know, 3D is taking a bunch of slices and then creating kind of a volumetric image, like okay. showing volume through 2D slices. Basically. Yeah, okay. I, I was fascinated by the notion that people were trying to see faces to sort of see who's see who's coming back or see who, you know, that it, linking it to reincarnation and, and um, uh, the, the idea that somebody in the family might be returning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, say more about like, that. Yes. Well, it sounded like you and Kian had ex- some experience with that or had talked to people about that. Oh, uh, yeah, that ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah that if, Well, if um, after someone dies, um, the person will also often come in a dream 
to another family member and ask mm-hmm. if it's okay if they come back. Mm-hmm. And then the woman the, will find out that she's pregnant. And so there's a direct confirmation. Wow. And then, and then is it like a follow-up, like, and look at this image, like, well, I I have not ever seen somebody specifically say that and show me an image. No, I have right. not seen that. But the but the people will um, definitely see a, a a resemblance when the when the baby's born, and um, they'll uh, may or may not when they're very young remember their that previous life, um, mm-hmm. identify things or places or people. Um, but then um, usually as they go age. Um, five, six, you know, then they will have forgotten. And there's this notion that certain kinds of, as you mentioned in your talk, there's certain kinds of foods that will um, cause you mm-hmm. to forget your previous life. Eggs is the one people talk about a lot. If you okay. eat eggs, then you'll, Stay away. you'll forget that previous life. Eric Davis gave a, gave a great talk about this, not related to ultrasound, but more related to Buddhism <laughs> in, uh, at UW a, a while ago now. It's really good. Um, so I didn't, people didn't talk, to me and I didn't ask about like specific recognition of faces, but I certainly heard people who had people talked about coming in, being pregnant, um, maybe suspecting or worried there might be a problem, having had a dream, having had a, a relative okay. ask permission to come back. So those sort of together, but there was never like, I'm looking at this, I got I got this scan in order to see who it is. It was like relating it to a specific person, but there was a sense that the scan tells you something about the being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, that's that's important to people. Maybe a question for for Janet and for Judy about um, sort of neopatrimonial practices. <laughs> like, how have those been important in in Cambodia and then and you know in in, in private healthcare? The accountability between patron and client. What has that meant, and how has that evolved? Uh, so that was. I was hoping that Ken would talk more about that in the Q and A because he's written about it, and I was like, is he going to buy this or is he going to push back? Um, so I, uh, so what I, so there's in particularly in political science, but also in some anthropology in, of Cambodia, there's a, you know, this interest in neopatrimonial relations and how um, sort of an analysis uh, that looks at kind of a state formation with a normative model maybe in Weber or sort of Europe is that like, oh, there's the public and there's the private. And when you have neo-patrimonial relations, there's the self-interest that the government is used to advance self-interest, right? And that's part of one of the features of this. And then the patrimony is in is also traced to sort of cultural specificities in Cambodia or maybe Uganda or other parts of the world, right? Um, where um, what, uh, what the government is for is partly um, Kasai kind of enrichment of networks, right? Um, and so I was trying to think through what that looks like with um, when you have something that's like this material object, like an ultrasound, and then a medical clinic, for example. Um, what does what do those sorts of relations uh, look like in this kind of moment of um, capitalist formation, which is now quite advanced, right, in Cambodia, um, but also sort of different impetuses for the the social, right? As Judy described, like in the '80s, the government was the only game in town for medicine, right? And then and then there's a bit of an opening right. in the '90s, and so if you think about uh, medicine and public sort of public health as a a good, right, and you think about um, you know, uh, for-profit medicine as kind of a co-optation of that good. Um, that's what I was sort of trying to get at. I don't think I fully got there. That's something that I want to talk about more. But but what I was interested in is how that argument about neo-patrimonial relations kind of fits into this post-Soviet global condition where there isn't sort of just socialism or or or, or capitalism, but where there's sort of this leveling in um in some ways where we're talking about categories of people, there's sort of the citizen, um, there's the consumer, right? These these terms were being used by both doctors, mostly doctors, sort of like, we have a free market now, so now we, ha- we will have better medicine. So I was interested in how those categories of analysis kind of for doctors and, and health professionals was being kind of interpolated with uh, 
patrimonial sort of systems. But that's a that's an argument that I would be willing to be challenged on. It was just one that I was it, in your response, Judy. Maybe well, it, well, it, it leads back to um, other things you, that you talked about about the the why doctors do what they do and if it's humanitarian or if it's just earning money or if it, you think about the the very old um, sort of pre modern ideas of patron patronage and everything about Hanks and um, you know that. Um, it's about intent, and so the intent is that you're doing good, and the the patron gives things to their clients out of the goodness of their heart, and uh, because and because of that, um, they're born into a better family or they're born into a better situation, and then of course they're going to be wealthy, but that wealth they're not pursuing the wealth, the wealth that the situation comes to them, they're Has born into that from, situation, following from. Yeah. You know, their kindness the and their generosity and their, mm -hmm. you know, metta, karuna, you know, their compassion for other beings. And so mm -hmm. um, a doctor who has this higher status in part has that higher status because there would be the assumption that they were doing good or they had done good in they the previous life or in yeah. earlier in this life. And so that, but then there's a very large discussion about whether or not the patron client system as it works today, neo-patrimonialism still has any of that old right. Buddhist underpinning, or if it's all just monetized and, you know, uh, the connections are purely um, exchanges of, of um, uh, enriching oneself instead of the exchanges being about that, that older idea of um will, will echo from before you were alive and exchanges yeah. that the that the patrons still do things because they're serving uh the clients um right and there's a yeah yeah this sense of responsibility right that that that's what a good what a good patron does is um like hierarchy you know some have argued that hierarchy is naturalized it doesn't mean that it's good but it also doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad right if people fulfill their roles appropriately like um, showing respect, doing care, those sorts of things, it, it, you know, but but the abuses of hierarchy are, um, are partly when the patron doesn't do their job, right? <laughs> Judy, do you think the attack on uh, Buddhism in the Khmer Rouge era, um, it seems obvious that that would have hindered maybe some of those, or, but, you you know, it's tough to, it, it, how, what effect do you think that had on the, the, those notions of of the way that patron client patrimony and, and you know Oh that's a vast question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a vast question. Yes, it's um um certainly it's it's changed um across the Khmerish time and the PRK time into contemporary society. Um but I made the argument in the mid 2000s somewhere that at, at the local level um, in local level politics, there still was the idea that um, the patron was to some extent fulfilling those old ideals of um, caring about their community and uh, a nurturing sort of role. At the central level in government, bureaucracies or the policeman on the corner taking money from the guy on the motorcycle you know i um it it uh, you i think you can certainly make the argument that it's completely monetized <laughs> and no longer has any sort of notion of there being protection involved yeah but judy would you think that um in buddhism even you know traditional notions of buddhism that money making money isn't necessarily opposed to doing good yeah it's no it's not Right? right, isn't that one of the revolutions of Buddhism from its outset that the, it was a merchant class? It comes from having done good. It, right? <laughs> yeah, so I think that's an interesting kind of yeah, making money is fine. For, yeah, it's fraught for some again. I think more expectations from outside about what 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 money is. This Protestant kind of it's a corruption, but <laughs> and it's like not necessarily. It can be right, but yeah. So what, uh, um, give us, uh, give us, so we're, we're looking forward to a, a book coming out, uh, this summer, maybe, um, yeah, are you. what other, what other, uh, projects in the works, uh, should we keep our eyes open for? Yeah, well, there's a few things. Uh, one is this, um, exciting project, uh, that's, um, 
to do with the archive of uh, the US photo, uh, journalist Elizabeth Becker, who Cambodia folks will have heard of, um, but she um, uh, has donated her materials to the University of Washington. She did that before I started working here in 2015, but I didn't know that when I took this job. And so I was like, Elizabeth Pecker's archive is here. We've got to do something with this. And so um, one of the sort of slow projects that I've been doing kind of in the background since taking this job is, um, is thinking of ways to kind of activate this archive engage communities with it both in um, Cambodia and in sort of the Puget Sound area. So that's been sort of ongoing at a low level and it's involved workshops at the Bopana Center in Phnom Penh, which has a digital copy of this archive, and then also workshops in Seattle with local artists. Where, where can, so can people access this if they want to, how do they get it's there? Not, not online, yet. Okay. yeah, publicly available online. We're working on a website that will have many of the images and some of the okay. textual materials. So the archive is based on primarily materials she uh, from her 1978 trip to um, what was Democratic Kampuchea in December. She was there a couple of weeks before the Vietnamese invasion. Um, mm. And she was invited uh, along with two others, um, uh, another journalist and a scholar. Uh, a, so it, it was a, she writes about, there's a whole chapter about this visit in her book, When the War Was Over. Um, but, and I recommend you read it. It's really interesting. We also um, need to plug her new book, um, yes, you don't yeah. belong here, which is about three women journalists during the Vietnam War and as mm -hmm. path breaking, groundbreaking role models for herself and other journalists who Absolutely. come after. It's a wonderful book. It is. It's a really interesting book. And she has been, she's been, she's met with some of the people who have done the workshops. She's kind of give, given talks about her archive. And so we're definitely trying to work with her. Um, around is her process. entire, not just Cambodia stuff, her entire archive there at, at Washington? No, it's just the Cambodia okay. materials and that, and some, you know, these include her notes, um, photographs that she took, uh, but also some propaganda materials from, um, DK and also the PR, the the subsequent government, sort of the PRK, the People's Republic of Kampuchea, and it's so one of the things that US uh, US uh, the workshop in Seattle, those participants noted, they're like the language is so similar in all of these materials, like you can't tell which regime produced these, like in the way they're talking about women's rights and power and sort of how they're advertising the benefits of their particular political system, and so. Those sorts of observations are really interesting, whereas in Phnom Penh, people were very interested in, I, this workshop was primarily with artists, and people commented on sort of what was happening in the images, like, uh, I see, you know, is, is the way that she's framing this to do with um, the uncertainty around her role uh, being on a kind of propaganda tour, right? Uh -huh. And so... There were just very, there's a lot uh, more to do yeah. with that archive, but also with how people can use it to, in their artistic projects and their kind of storytelling that they want to do. Speaking about artists, I want to do another yeah. plug. Yeah. Um, so in your talk, you showed an image by um, Sao Sao Mao. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that sent me into looking at her other work and it's amazing, just right? amazing. Yeah. I know. Um, under the water that. Um, show that she did that's astonishing work yeah I don't I haven't met her personally but we've communicated online and I am a huge fan of her work um I'm trying to argue with the press to have it as a cover but they're not buying it <laughs> well uh Jenna uh Judy and I want to thank you for for joining us uh come back again <laughs> thank you so much it's really it's such a privilege to talk about work with people who have read it and thought about it, you know, who attended the talk. So I really want to thank you because it's giving me stuff to think about too. Yeah. Okay. And join us for again uh, in another episode. Thanks, Jen. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.